Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hello, everybody. Yes. Hello, everyone. Indeed. Uh, today, we had a, a really interesting conversation. We, we certainly uh, anticipate everyone will enjoy. But before we get to that, can you share with the audience about our social media platforms and ways to contact us, Glenn? Of course. So on Twitter, we're at Change Talking, or if you want to join with myself or Seb, it's at S-G-K-F-R-O-M-N-C. So S-G-K from N-C or else at Glenn Hines. And just a, a shout out to Angela Clark, who is a children's service leader and manager in Family Safe Garden. And Angela, whose handle is Deputy S Director, uh, was our 1,000th follower on Twitter. So thank you very much, Angela, and thank you everybody else who's following us and commenting and retweeting our tweets. So thank you for that. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Our Facebook is Talking to Change. And email is podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. Yes, thank you. And actually, this episode was a an idea offered to us by someone who when we reach out for ideas for uh for episodes uh, this is what this came from so today we spoke with dr katherine shear uh who is a psychiatrist at columbia university who specializes in grief work and has developed uh, along with other colleagues a uh, a therapy to uh, address prolonged grief and has incorporated motivational interviewing in that work. And this was, this was a really, uh, a really fascinating conversation with Kathy. And uh, you know, as far as take homes for me, it, you know, she posed something early in the conversation to kind of set the stage of the treatment. And that is to consider when we lose somebody close to us to, to consider what is it that we're actually losing and she broke it down into a couple of different ways. One was for, for someone who is, who is really close to us, a loved one that we might grieve in this really painful way. One of the things we're losing is we're losing a sense of who we are. We're losing someone who perhaps helps us uh, experience ourselves in a very authentic and genuine way. Hmm. And the other thing that we're losing is, is this, the role that this person plays for us in, in really deep emotional and physiological ways. Uh, she talked about the loss of regulatory inputs when, when a loved one dies, that there's, we, we no longer have one of the ways that we, that we use to regulate even basic processes like heart rate and blood pressure. 
So that, that really struck me to hear her break down this, this question of what is it that we're actually losing when mm. someone passes? Mm. Yeah, it's really significant when you think of it in those terms and uh, that it, it's, it goes to that depth. And alongside of that is that what was lovely was the way that she offers this really considered framework of support that, that they have developed and supporting people through grief and supporting through people with prolonged grief disorder that that she describes the six healing miles, milestones and then how been, having been introduced to motivational interviewing, how she uses motivational interviewing in those heal, supportive conversations as people go along that healing journey. Right, yeah, the, the those milestones really helped provide a structure to uh, to something which was certainly helpful for us to understand and to learn. And uh, I imagine also helpful for a person who's who's struggling in such a profound way to to have a, a, a bit of a roadmap to follow as they um, as they go through their healing process. Well, uh, hope everyone enjoys the episode. I know that we certainly did. So um, off we go. Hello, Kathy. Welcome to the podcast. We're uh, very happy to have you on for today. I'm very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Well, uh, as we always start with our guests, we'd love to hear a bit about your background, uh, uh, how you got into the work that you're doing, and and specifically what your uh, early MI story was. How'd you get into motivational interviewing? Sure. It's, um, yeah, it was a while ago. Um, So I'm trained as a psychiatrist and um, primarily in psychodynamic psychotherapy, but I was always interested in, um, in, in research. So I got involved in doing psychotherapy research, a little bit unusual for a psychiatrist um, starting in the, in the early 1980s in, in um, working with anxiety disorders and then kind of quite serendipitously after doing that for more than a decade, um, someone asked me, someone, someone was working with, um, with bereaved people and, and seeing that they were, they were working with bereavement related depression in particular. And they noticed that there were grief symptoms that were different from depression and that they weren't responding to the treatment for depression. But they did have some anxiety. And I was doing psychotherapy research, as I said, a little bit rare. So they actually asked me to see if I could help figure out what to do to help these people. So I got involved. Um, We started that actually process considering grief as a stress response, which we can talk about in a few minutes if you want. But and then and very similar, actually, the, the, the kind of grief symptoms that were troubling people were were kind of similar to PTSD. So we started out kind of using a form of, of um, prolonged exposure for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, we were doing that work and it was being successful. We did a pilot study that was quite successful. And then we got another grant and we hired a therapist who turned out to be married to someone named Alan Zukoff, who is now a senior motivational interviewing um, trainer. And, and Alan was working in the substance abuse clinic at the time, but, but his wife said, you know, I think you might be interested in hearing a little about this, this 
motivational interviewing thing. She wasn't doing it actually, but she, but she, um, she thought I would. And so we had him come and present a few times. And, and in fact, it was really interesting. In the meantime, I was also um, doing a lot of reading because I didn't understand grief, honestly, at that point. And so and one of the one of the lines of research that was very, I think, very, is very relevant to grief is um, is basically attachment relationships. And and there and there's a link between attachment and substance use, as I'm sure you know, and that, um, and one way of, another way of thinking about, of thinking about bereavement and grief is that it's a little bit similar. It bear, it has some similarities to, um, it has some similarities to substance withdrawal. So there's a, there's a sort of, yearning there's a craving for the person you could say which we usually call yearning and longing but it, it really is similar we actually at some point along the way did a a survey we developed a survey with um substance use substance abuse colleagues at columbia and um administered it to our grief patients it was based on heroin withdrawal and it turned out that we, we had to tweak some of the items, but we got very similar kinds of ratings. So um, it's so so there is that similarity. So that is another way that I think that's part of why it was so intuitive to use MI in in our treatment, which we started to do. We started to build it in in two ways. In that way, sort of a, sort of in, in kind of the the um, the basic orientation to the work, um, not necessarily the, each MI skill exactly, but some of them. And, and also we have a component of the therapy that we call aspirational goals work that comes from MI personal goals work. It's, and it was kind of adapted from that. So <laughs> that's, that's the MI story of, of, that's fascinating yeah. what you're introducing us there to Kathy and <clears throat> certainly as today's episode is is focused on the grief it's it's already uh intriguing to hear the relationship that you're describing between uh grief and our experiences an individual's experience of grief and bereavement and the almost the physical and emotional responses to that and its relationship that can be mirrored in in substance misuse and I, I guess that as before you come on, before we met, you've said both uh, Seb and I were talking. I was saying, you know, it's going to be really interesting talking about grief because even though it's something that we've all experienced, it's not something that necessarily we've all we've had an awful lot of training in, and we don't necessarily do an awful lot with it. Certainly here in Northern Ireland, if somebody appears in a in a, in a service and they're experiencing grief or bereavement, they're 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 sent towards a grief counselor rather than us as a, uh, as a practitioner doing it. So there's specific services, specialist services. So it'll be really interesting to, to discover a bit more about that relationship because as from coming from an addictions background, I can certainly identify the idea of how people go through cravings and, and, and through the the uh, relieving themselves of the tensions of, of, of a journey recovery. 
<clears throat> and I'm definitely looking forward to exploring that with you. But what's interesting is it sounded was it was very fortuitous then that that you met uh, with with Alan uh, at that time where it's almost like motivation. Your introduction to motivation living was crossing over with that and insight to substance misuse and grief. And I, I guess at this stage, if you could go tell us a bit more about grief and. You know, you talked about attachment relationships and the and and why that may impact on grief. Uh, if 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 you think about the audience as as, as as like me and say we don't know an awful lot about grief, but we're really intrigued to know what you've discovered on your journey to understand why people experience grief in different ways and in response to different people and different situations. Right. So I think we have to start by just agreeing how we're going to be talking about grief at least here and okay. how we always talk about it, which is we, grief is really the, the response to loss. And it is an emotion, but it's not one emotion. A lot of times people think of grief as an, a specific emotion itself, but it really isn't. It's, it's a, a complex mix of many emotions, really actually of any emotion. And that includes, interestingly, some positive emotions mixed in there, as well as the painful ones. The heart of grief is yearning and longing and or preoccupying thoughts and, in this case, memory, thoughts and memories of, of the person who died. So that's at the heart of it. But then it's not always what shows up in any given moment in grief. Sometimes there's anger. Sometimes there's guilt. Sometimes there's shame. Sometimes there's um, a lot of times there's anxiety. So it can be and it can be any of those or all of those together sometimes, and the yearning and longing might be prominent or not, but overall the yearning and longing is very prominent. And and the other, so the interesting thing about grief, sometimes I say it's a simple word for a very complex, multifaceted, time-varying response to loss, because we, we have worked, basically, we're talking actually today, and we've worked exclusively with um, grief after the loss of a loved one. So we know we, we experience grief after any meaningful loss, but it's most intense really after someone we love dies. And so that's really what we're talking about here. And the, the interesting thing about that, there are two interesting things I think that about that. One is, one is kind of as you said, Glenn, why do we experience this sort of really intense kind of all-encompassing kind of response to the absence of something. I mean, what is it, you know, what what in the world? I mean, we, we wouldn't have probably, no one actually predicts that they're going to feel the way they feel after they lose someone close. That's one of the things about grief is that it surprises everyone. And it's very disconcerting because of how intense it is. So one question is, why is that? And there is where we're going to turn to try to understand what it is we've lost, which is a close relationship. And, and, you know, I've found, I've, I've looked into all kinds of, um, studies of close relationships. Attachment theory is not the only lens to look at, at um, close relationships, but it's the one that I kind of think is the most informative. So we can talk about that. But then the other really interesting question is since death is, permanent and this absence is permanent why doesn't grief stay the same way it, you know it doesn't stay hmm. so what is it that's happening that 
kind of causes grief to change over time. And then, and that's going to, of course, be very important in under his understanding how to help someone in whom it's not changing. And that's the condition of prolonged grief disorder that's just been added to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the official diagnosis. It's, that's now essentially an official mental health problem, both in the World Health Organization and the American Psychiatric Association. So those are the two questions I think that, that, um, I will, I, I can, address. I don't know if you have anything you want to ask me in between, you know, before that, or should I just go ahead and talk about that? Well, and, and I, I do, I I don't know if it'll be best to answer this question first or answer it in the context of you expanding on those other items that you identified. But, you know, one of the things that I think about uh, with, with certainly in a context of grief, but then in other places as well is when we talk about motivational interviewing or the application of MI for a particular problem. One of the things that I think we think about is what's the motivational challenge mm-hmm. that the client faces. Yeah. Uh, obviously a, a, an easy example would be if someone is smoking, then obviously the challenge is to reduce or quit entirely, you know, that kind of thing. But with, with, when it comes to grief, like what, what would you say you're helping people to do differently, whether it's behavioral or maybe there's a more of a cognitive or emotional experience. What what would you say to that? So I do think that's probably better answered in the context of understanding what it is that we think happens or needs to happen in order for grief that's so intense and all encompassing to be, to move kind of into the background in our life to sort of, um, yeah. So, 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 and, and I think I should start by quickly summarizing what it means to lose some, you know, what it is, what is it we're losing when we lose someone close? And the answer to that is that I think we, we can think of our close attachments as providing for us two main things. One is called um, a safe haven. And, and, and that means these are people who, we can turn to when things aren't going well in our lives, when, when we have a problem, when we're threatened in some way, when we're emotionally upset, they're there for us and they support us. And sometimes they, they actually do things for us. They're, they're really there for us. And the other, the other thing that, that, that our close relationships provide is what's called um, a secure base. And that's a place from which that that's a the way that the relationship really supports us in being who we are and expressing ourselves in, in living a life with purpose and meaning. That's a a piece of it, you know, that we, that we can follow our own kind of natural interests and values and do things that maybe are risk-taking at times, but stretch ourselves, learn and grow. And, and, the person who's our secure base has our back as we're doing that. And they also encourage us to do it. And they also capitalize on, um, you know, on, we can capitalize on, on our successes by sharing them with this person. So that's all of that is a very big deal. And I think when I say it, you know, you and, and other people can, can relate to that. You know what, it, you know, that, you know, that you get this from um, the people you love and, and, but it turns out that we've learned 
I don't know, in the last um, four or five, six decades, that there's a lot more to these relationships even than that. And in particular, they actually help us regulate ourselves on an everyday basis, physiologically, as well as, of course, psychologically. So we sometimes people are aware that they help with emotion regulation, but they may not be aware that they also, that, that our close relationships impact our ability to manage intrusive thoughts, to have, they, they're very much form a part of our sense of ourselves, our social and our personal identities, um, and, and a whole range of different um, psychological functions. And as I said, physiological ones as well, including even um, sleep and sleep, sleep and eating behaviors are influenced by them. Um, but also heart rate and blood pressure and things sort of in our bodies that we don't sort of know about necessarily on a day, on a moment to moment basis. So when we lose all of those kind of supportive and regulatory inputs from this person, I think that begins to explain the enormous disruption that we feel in our bodies and our minds, some of which we don't even understand because we didn't know they were, you know, it's not like a one-to-one, you know, okay, I know, you know, I was getting, you know, something or other on a regular basis from this person. Now I'm not getting it. That sort of makes sense, but there is all this other stuff going on. So that's, that's kind of how we understand what we call acute grief or what happens right after someone dies. And let me stop there for a minute case there's anything. <laughs> no, what strikes me is just how profound that what you're telling us is, Kathy, that, you know, that, that while we have this clearly conscious relationship with this individual, it runs much more deep, much deeper than that. It's almost like at a cellular level that it's, that yes. it's, that it's influencing every, every aspect of who I am. It's about my safety and my growth, but also just in my experience of my relationship within myself. It's how, you know, it's where my blood pressure's at. It's, it's how much I eat. It's what I'm doing. It's just all encompassing. And, uh, so you can understand then why somebody of that significance that working to, uh, that so, across so many different spheres of the, my experience of myself that when they step away or when they, when they leave my, my, it is profound. It is. It's, yeah. it's, and, and so there's all these physical, I guess that part of, I'm guessing them is part of this grief response is, is it at every level of this relationship is impacted. So it's affecting my blood pressure. It's affecting my heart. It's affecting the way I'm eating. It's affecting the way I'm thinking. It's the way, right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And there's there's one other little piece of this actually, though, that I I think maybe I should bring in at this moment because it has to do with the. So you said step away, you know, and that made me remember to tell you that. Um, of course, when when our loved ones step step away, which they do all the time, every single day, almost. I mean, most of us don't spend all day long with the people that we love. Certainly not as adults, even as children. But but um, when they step away like that, it doesn't phase us, right? We don't notice it. It doesn't. And why is that? And that's because, again. Um, Attachment theory calls this a working model. We in, we internalize, literally internalize in our brains, representation of our experiences with these people, and and maybe in a context of a of a kind of almost um, biologically predetermined um, 
kind of framework that, that, that those experiences fit into. And the framework we sometimes call attachment style, but it, it, um, and it can vary. It tends to be, it tends to be established. It seems like it has in part a kind of hereditary component, but it tends to be established early in life and to be pretty constant, but not, not unmutable, you know, not unchangeable. So, but the important thing here is that we, we have built this basically quite extensive and detailed mental model of the people we love that mostly, you know, operates to help us feel that sense of connection, even have confidence in it and know that they're going to be there for us and all things like that, even when they're not physically, even if they go away on a trip that we notice it, actually, there's evidence that we notice it in our body and mind, but nothing like what happens when they die. So that begins to that begins to establish a situation in which the person is both gone and not gone, right? Even when they die, they're not entirely gone because they're still in that extensive internalized network, so to speak. So that's going to set up a situation of, you know, are they gone or not gone to, in a way we have to figure that out. I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of, um, you know, sounds kind of strange to say that, you know, you don't really know the person's died because you do know they die when they die, but you don't exactly understand the finality of it until you've experienced it for a while. And you can, and that experience of the absence of the person, like the experience of the presence of the person gets incorporated into this, this model. So that takes some time. And that's one of the things that's going to change which is the second question we need to address here is why, why doesn't it stay all encompassing? Why did, you know, how do we, how do we deal with this? And, and that's kind of the answer is that we do deal with it. And, and, um, probably we have some natural kind of, um, almost automatic ability to do that in the part of our brain, especially the part of our brain that we're not aware of, you know, that, that tends to help us, kind of adapt to whatever environment we're in. So basically we think about the, I mean, it's pretty clear that what you have to do in order to get from that place of all encompassing acute grief to a place that we call integrated grief, because you really never stop feeling the loss in some way. You never stop feeling some level of grief, but um, most of the time after a while, it, it's, it's more in the background and it gradually moves more and more into the background as people are more able to refocus on life going forward. And to do that, we think of, we think of the need to um, focus on both what's called loss focused adaptation, what we call loss focused adaptation and restoration focus. So in, in other words, we have to, we have to do two main things. One is to accept the reality that we're in. And I just told you that why one reason why that's really hard to do. And of course, there's natural resistance to that too, because we'd much prefer that they would stay around. But we have to accept that reality, which means accepting its finality and also accepting all the, all the things that it means in our life. And there are lots, like I just said, I mean, I, I didn't even get into all the details of that, but there's so many ways. And then, in addition to that, 
we have a new relationship with the person. We don't lose our relationship because again, it's been internalized. So we, but it's really different after they die. Right. So we have to, we have to accept that new relationship. And, and lastly, the other thing that happens when someone close dies is that it does not only affect us, of course, and it doesn't only affect us psychologically, it also affects us socially, in other words, both, both because it affects other people and it also because it affects our social being, we, our social identity, our social role often changes, you know, from being, let's say, from being a married person to being a widow or widower, that's a different social role, right? Um, and, and the way we feel our whole presence in the social world, our social identity also changes. So, so, so we have to accept all that. That's, that's one piece of adapting to a loss. The other piece is to restore our capacity for well-being. So our capacity to thrive. And we think of that using self-determination theory, namely autonomy, uh, competence and relatedness, all of which are undermined, pretty severely undermined typically in losing someone close that we, we kind of lose our sense of ourself. And so we don't really know anymore what we care about. And that's what, we, and we have to do things that we actually intrinsically care about in order to have a sense of autonomy. And then we also lose our sense of competence. I mean, that's pretty universal. We, we just feel uneasy about ourselves. And then we also, it also turns out that our close relationships are a big part of how we feel a sense of, of belonging and mattering in the world. And that's the, that's what we mean by relatedness. That's what's in self-determination theory. So we don't feel like we know how we belong or matter anymore. And so those three things we have to somehow kind of bring back online, so to speak, we have to, we have to be able to do those. So that's the, that's the process that we're going to address in, I think in any grief therapy, it's what we've, it's what we've used in our therapy for prolonged grief disorder in a, in a kind of, in a manualized way. And, and, um, you know, the last thing I want to say about this is that we've operationalized those two big processes into six, what we call healing milestones. And that's important because those healing milestones are, are tie, are, are, are connected, you know, we are, are ways that we have to learn to think about the world differently and also to experience the world differently. So it's, it involves both, both cognitive and experiential learning is what those milestones involve. And, if we go back to what we were talking about a minute ago, it's a kind of learning that almost no one wants to do. They would prefer not to have to learn. That. So there's where, again, that's that, that's a place where motivation is very, very important. So that's, that's kind of the framework we're working with. Wow. What a, what a wonderful summary there of all the different facets of the work. And um, yeah, it, it, it's, I'm still kind of thinking about this, um, these two real significant aspects of a loss like this. One is the, the, this, the regulatory inputs, the, that phrase, I, I don't know, for some reason I love that phrase, but that the, that this, lo, that this loved one allows us to regulate at physiological levels at that sort of core level. There's something about the presence of that person 
even if it's the absence of that person, they've gone to work, they've been on vacation, there's still those inputs present in us. And then there's this like sense that the, the impact of that person in our lives allows us to be who we are in our, in a most authentic and genuine way. And when we lose that person, um, it, it makes, it just hits me in a different way of, of understanding why we would uh, in some ways resist or fight so hard to go through this grief process because to accept these things that you're offering for people to accept is perhaps the fear of I'm going to, I've already lost myself, but I'm trying like crazy to hold on to it. And, uh, well, so that, that kind of brings us, I suppose, to the motivational challenge question and, and that there is both a cognitive and experiential or behavioral, um, aspect of it. So maybe you could, if you could speak a bit more to how you see, am I helping with that, that kind of cognitive and experiential learning that you described when you're, when you're going through these healing milestones? So you're going to help me with this a little bit because I'm going to, I'm going to explain how it works and, and how, what I've observed and what, you know, in the way that I use MI, which isn't, which isn't as I think full, full throated, whatever it is, as it may be, um, could be. So we can maybe figure this out together, but, but so the, the six healing milestones, as I said, they're operation, they are operationalized versions of the two, the of accepting the loss and restoring the capacity for well-being, And I'm going to walk you through them because this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. So we start out with um, the a premise that that part of this is cognitive learning, and that's psychoeducation. And so we we do psychoeducation essentially around everything I've just mentioned. But of course, when we're working with a, a client, we have to be more, um, you know, we, we're more detailed and we personalize that. But psychoeducation itself, I think, is best done from an MI kind of perspective, let's say. That, so, you know, you want to be very much transparent. You want to be um, respectful of the person and, and a collaborative with the person and checking in frequently with the person. So we use MI in psychoeducation throughout this, the, the six milestones, okay, throughout working with each of the six milestones. Um, and then the other, the other thing is that each, so that's the cognitive part of the learning that we want people to do. Then the experiential part is, again, is we, the way we do it in the, in our treatment is to have, six basically exercises that we do with, um, with people. So the first one, the first healing milestone is to help people understand grief and learn to manage the grief related emotions. And that means, and managing grief related emotions means both regulating the emotional pain, which is intense and which needs, you know, needs different kinds of strategies to do that. And also 
permitting the positives to be there. They're, they're naturally there, but people will, will try not to feel positive things because they feel survivor guilt or because they feel guilty in some other way, or they just feel uncomfortable. Like it's not right for them, for, you know, to, to be happy because this person isn't alive anymore, can't live anymore. So, so, um, so what we're going to do to help people see this and, and actually the one other piece of this is that we've also learned from, um, from studies done by colleagues, you know, wonderful colleagues around the world that, that this process progresses best when, um, when people can alternate between experiencing the pain of the loss and really setting it aside and, and maybe focusing on some, something else. And that, that happens naturally as we move forward, that that's another observation um, that many people have made. And it seems to be, if you let it happen naturally, it seems to be very um, helpful. And so, Again, we're going to, there, there's, there's motivational interviewing pieces in the positive emotions as well, because there's, there's ambivalence about positive emotions, experiencing positive emotions. But the, what I was going to say is the, the procedure we use to help with experiential learning about what, you know, to understand grief and to understand how to manage these emotions is to do a very simple form of grief monitoring on a daily basis. Basically, we ask people to take just five minutes at the end of each day and think back over the day to a time, any time during the day when their grief was at its most intense for that day. And then to rate that on on a zero to 10 scale where 10 is the most intense it's ever been and zero, zero. And, um, and, you know, we do that every day for the highest grief. And then and then just to make a little note about what was happening at that moment. Like, you know, I, I woke up and remembered, suddenly remembered this person is gone. That's a kind of typical one. Um, but anything, whatever was happening. And then we do the exact same thing for the lowest level of grief that the person experienced that day. And then we ask them to kind of rate their the, the day overall as a high, medium, or low grief day, you know, it's a, that, and that sort of, that provide that's sort of more of a kind of a, of a follow it. Um, I don't know way people can just get a sense of how it's going over time, but the other two, the high and the low really help people start to see their grief in a new way. You know, they, first of all, a lot of people who come to us with, Intense grief think that it's intense all day long. They don't realize that it's got times when it's lower. But but then they very often say the first thing they say when we introduce this is, "Why would I want to do that?" You know, I'm, I came here to try to get help with my grief. I don't want to pay more attention to it. I want to pay less attention to it. I want it to go away. So um, again, there's the we get pushback about doing this. So. You know, so we have to motivate people to do that exercise. I can talk about how I do it, but maybe you could, maybe you have some ideas about that. What comes to me is, is that what you're describing, it's almost like that the practitioners offer that regulatory function in that place that, that, that in, in that your willingness to explore the grief experience 
is is first of all normalizing the grief that that's that that yeah. this is something that's happened. But very importantly, you're modeling and I'm not afraid of that. And your willingness to go and what are the positives without any judgment or criticism to f- open that door so their experience can be experienced safely. And uh, it goes back to that point that you made earlier on about the relationship you have with someone that has lo- that you have lost. That they offered you they offered you safety and a space to grow. And it sounds like that's the very thing that you're endeavouring to do, and in, in the way you're approaching this grief experience to go, yeah, this is terrible and this is so painful, and there's there's a journey. So what we'd like you to do is just keep keep an eye on things, just just for yourself, just you keep an eye on things, just to see what you notice and. And we'll we'll work from there, um, and just that idea of the psychoeducation people be, people may be aware of that that the notion or the the, the approach and motivation we call the information exchange protocol or EPE, the, uh, uh, elicit, provide, elicit, ask, give, uh, ask. So it's just that that ability to check with people. What you know, before we start talking about grief, tell me what do you understand about it? You know, before we talk about counseling, what do you understand about it, and then explore from there. So yes. That's that's fascinating, and, and just to help people to understand and regulate their grief. Please keep going. Well, and before you do, I I was just thinking too. And thanks for the invitation to for us to chew on it a little bit and think like, okay, from our our vantage points, listening to you walking through this process, like how do we see MI fitting? And it seems like maybe maybe this is true. I don't know, but it it perhaps there's a a bit of a paradox that people come to grief therapy with, which is I, I don't want to think about this and it's always 10 out of 10. It's always intense. And, and so the invitation to monitor their grief is both um, it, it, it sort of, I guess it challenges some of their own beliefs about what they may be going through, but doing it from an MI point of view, like to offer a reflection and hearing somebody who's really wrestling with that. I, I want to stop thinking about this and it's 10 out of 10 and you're inviting them to monitor their grief and to, and to perhaps explore that there's lows and mediums and highs, like to just be with them as they're working through that, using reflective listening and using the very Rogerian nature of MI, it, it might kind of lead them to consider that, um, you know, perhaps the idea of not thinking about the person anymore is, is, you know, it's while appealing at some level, on the other hand, they would never want to forget their loved one, you know? And, And so without providing the answers necessarily, just, kind of reflecting the dilemma that they're trying to work through kind of helps them to kind of free up to the idea that, okay, it's not 10 out of 10 every day. And no, actually I don't want to forget and I don't want it to go away. I don't want to get past it in the sense of never thinking about this person anymore. So anyway. I love what both of you said, actually. I mean, the, the, the relate, you're absolutely right that we, that one of the first things we do in this, in this therapy is to try to kind of provide a kind of a, I guess you could think of it as a kind of a splint. I mean, you know, I'm a medical person, but, but it's, it's the relationship, you know, the, they, people who are, 
struggling for a long period of time with grief generally wear out everyone else around them and so they're not they don't they're not getting it from they might have good friends out there but they're not they're not getting much from them anymore because they there's they're just too stuck and and it's frustrating for the people around them so we do that and it's an important and i and i i love the way you framed that around the specifically around the the, the grief monitoring um diary glenn and and the reflective listening and the the sort of um the ways of helping of of helping people um get interested in their grief and and i i should say one thing that we do actually regularly it's sort of built into the procedure is to is to ask people if they would be okay doing this with us once for like yesterday let's talk about yesterday you know when was the time when your grief was highest yesterday and that almost always shows them that there was a high period and there was a low period and also that you know, it provides that way of us being, you know, really interested and neutral and not afraid and supportive and all of that. So in doing that, usually they say, okay, I, I'll give it a try, you know, after that. So I think it is all of what you're talking about and it could be explicitly described in that way. But then the next thing that we do is, and this is kind of surprising, but then in the, in the second session, we spend a fair amount of time in the second session after we've done the first grief monitoring. Um, kind of going over what, you know, what, how we understand this person's personal grief and how it fits into this model, basically. And then telling them a little bit about what we're going to do in the therapy. And then, and then towards the end of the therapy, we ask them if, to switch gears. This is another MI kind of strategy, you know, ask them, tell them we'd like to switch gears. We'd like to change the subject and talk about something very different and ask for their permission to do that, which I always find, I think that's such a respectful and, um, I don't know, effective way of working with someone. So we do that. And what we're switching to is, um, a kind of a magic wand exercise where we, you know, where we say, I know that you're not feeling very, you know, very in a very good place right now, but I want you to try to imagine that your grief is, is much better managed. It's at a comfortable place for you. And what would you want for yourself? And the interesting thing, and what we're looking for here is, is really an intrinsically motivated long-term goal. Actually, this is, this is not as in, you know, the MI personal goals, I think is great. And it's, and we could possibly use it in this for personal goals, um, therapy, you know, outcome, but we don't, we use in this particular, we're, we're really trying to activate that intrinsic interest. And to do that, we, this is what we do. And about 10% of people, actually, this is the surprising thing who are deeply, you know, in, into this grief place actually answer that question in a really interesting way, in a way that's kind of shocking in a way, because they, they have been, it turns out that they have been kind of secretly nurturing some, some idea of what, of something they might really like to do. Like, like I, what comes to mind is one person told me they, they always wanted to become a museum docent and they didn't have the time to do this because of the, you know, in their relationship where the person wasn't interested in it and didn't want them to do it, whatever. So that's an example. Or actually the first one we very, we did was a, an older woman in her seventies who lost her, um, her spouse and he had, 
he had been they'd been very close and he would always drive her around wherever she wanted to go. And so she, and she hadn't had even a driver's license for years. And she said um, that she would like to she'd been thinking she'd been dreaming that um, wouldn't it be the thing if she went out and bought herself a little green VW bug? <laughs> I was like, where did that come from? This woman had been suicidal. She was really, in addition to grieving, depressed and and sort of so. So it pulls for that kind of thing. But most people don't. But most people say, well, I just want to feel less grief. That's that's how they answer it. And so, you know, there again, we need to motivate them to to get into even understanding things they care about again. So we, we start, we kind of stay with them and, and, um, and work with them to try to help them identify some long-term, some kind of not even, we start, I mean, for people who can't do it at all, we start with trying to help them identify things they care about. And sometimes when we can't do that with conversation, we use the MI values card sort. So that's another place that we, we bring it in. And then from there we say, well, you know, is, can you think of anything you could do that? And then, and then we try to plan that for actually after, you know, accomplishing it well after the, the treatment, but starting to move forward stepwise. So. Yeah. Just again, what strikes me is, is that just the, the link that you've made between grief and substance misuse, what strikes me is that idea that, no, you're creating a space where we invite people to, if they wish, to explore the positive consequences of this loss. What are some of the, the, the advantages that yes. now manifest? And right. how how challenging that might be for us as a practitioner to consider how, how how difficult it might be for some people to allow themselves to think about that, that I'm not, I'm not supposed to have any positives because of the loss. But how that then is mirrored in an experience of work and addictions, how until I was introduced to motivational view and how reluctant I would have been to explore your positive relationship with drugs. You know, what is it that mm-hmm. drugs bring to you that, that mm-hmm. are positive for you? Because if we're not supposed to be encouraging you to talk about the good things, about the bad, the bad stuff. And just that this is ambivalence. You know, there's two sides to this. There's there's two there's two energies pulling uh, at this person, and we just want to let them know we're willing to explore it with them if they are ready and they want to, and that we we fully anticipate there's going to be some positives, and then it's back to that safety. And I won't be shocked, and and it's in that place where right. I'm not shocked that you can then explore. You know what, when when this is done, I'm going to get myself a, a VW Beetle and I'm going to drive around the North Coast and, you know, but not today, but not today. It is it is, it is something that I might do in the future, but thank you for the opportunity for me to acknowledge that in a safe place. So, yeah, again, I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining my interest in what these six, what the, what the other healing minds, milestones right. are. So, Seb, do you want to add anything before... No, no. Okay. Happy to hear about those miles. Okay, so the so then the third one is what we call um, strengthening relationships because, as I mentioned, you know, and I think you you can understand this that 
people, first of all, people who've lost someone really close, you know, that's really meaningful, usually do have other people in their life. We don't have just one person, even if they're not as close as the, as the person who died, sometimes they're not as close, but they are, they're potential people that could be, you know, could move into that role out there. And, um, and in the, you know, in, in the natural social world, even before you get to that confidant person, you still, you know, you can, you can start to rebuild more, um, everyday relationships in, in a more positive way as well. And so, um, so what we do for this typically is we, we, in, we, we actually encourage the person, the, the client to invite someone to come to a session with us. And the purpose of that is, is to basically to, um, remind in a, in a sense remind both of them of the positives in their relationship so when they come in um well i can tell you what it, what happens when they come in but i'm i'm thinking that this is another place where you know people will say oh i can't do that you know i i wouldn't want to do that i'm i'm already too much of a burden on this person and um and that feels like i would just be asking more of them and they already can't do what i ask them and I, I don't want to do it. So again, we have to, we have to help motivate them to do this. Um, and, you know, I guess we, you know, we would, we would meet them where they are, which is, you know, again, allow them to talk about that side of things, but also remind them that, you know, that this is probably a person who would like to be part of their frustration is they don't know how to help. And maybe if we, if they can understand what you're experiencing a little better, they probably don't understand it because most people don't understand it. So if they come in and we can kind of explain it to them. Um, and then the last thing is that we've done this, of course, for a long time and, um, and almost, I would say with very, very few exceptions, the people who come in are so eager to come They're They, you know, they're eager to come, not, they're not reluctant. And when they get and after they've finished, they're also very grateful to be able to, to have another way of thinking about what the person is experiencing, what the griever is experiencing and, and maybe some ideas about how to help. Yeah. That, and, and just thinking about all the, the delicacies of how to navigate these conversations, you know, the, the, the idea that no, there's, there's no one else in my life. This was the only person and knowing that that's not, that it's likely not the case in a literal sense, but to how you kind of gradually start from a place of accepting where they're at and then, you know, and then gently expanding. I'm sure if you had more time, we might be able to go into the specifics of how you do that, but just, you know, gently inviting them to consider other people that are in their life, not in the same way, not to the same extent, not in the same roles, but there are other people in their life that are experiencing something similar perhaps, or they're willing to support them. Um, just all the ways that you could see this, the, this motivational challenges, right. Of, of the, right. the awareness, like, yeah, yes, I do have other people in my life and I'm reluctant or ambivalent to accept that or to think about that. We'd love for you to continue on with the, the, uh, okay. 
you know, the six, um, the, the, six, the last three. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so, so what we've done up till now, you might recognize is sort of building the support side or sort of building some, all three of these originals so are being able to accept grief, seeing the future in a positive way and strengthening relationships as we even start to do that and give the person a little bit of hope that that's where we're going, that that's going to happen in this therapy that provides a kind of foundation for the last three of the um, experiential exercises, which are the most difficult by far, and they're the loss focused ones. And so they include the, I'll talk about two of them and then the last one separately, but the, the next two um, involve finding a way to narrate the story of the death that in a coherent story of the death that they can think about themselves and that they can share with other people. And, and we do this in a way that's very powerful and, and kind of frightening for people. We ask people to close their eyes and visualize themselves back at the time when they first learned of the death and just talk about what happened from that point forward. And this is a procedure, if anyone is familiar with something called prolonged exposure for PTSD, it came directly from that. We modified it a little bit as we moved on because the grief problem, the death of a loved one is a little different, but in any case, that's what we do. And then we, and also along with that prolonged exposure approach, we also ask them to start to think about the things that they're avoiding because they are reminders that the person is gone and, and, um, and make a list of those. And then we start to do what's you know, it's essentially, we call it situational revisiting. Um, we call the first one imaginal revisiting and the second one situational revisiting of these, these places. And, and we get people starting to do those. And I think the ambivalence in those two um, procedures is, you know, it's pretty clear as well. Right. But the, the, you know, the, the imaginal revisiting in particular, there's often ambivalence, not only in the, in the client, but also in the therapist about doing it. And I would say that ambivalence, I struggle with that ambivalence, having done this for like 25 years, every single time I'm with a client, I feel like, oh, do I really want to do this? Because I know it's going to be very painful and I don't like doing that. So you kind of have to deal with your own ambivalence there as well as the client's. And that in itself is a really significant thing that has come up from time to time in the podcast before, which is the experience of for the practitioner. And given the fact that you're saying, look, I'm in the situation and um, I'm, I'm working with grief, I'm working with pain, I'm working with loss, I'm working with potentially shame and really, really powerful, big feelings. And as well as that, I'm now going to invite this person to open the door and let's look at them in, in, in the glare of the day. But the impact it has on you as a practitioner doing that, you know, seven, eight hours a day, five days a week over a period of time, what is it that, that you would encourage or what is it you have learned to do for yourself, Kathy, and what it is you would encourage anyone else who is, is supporting people in that situation where grief is, is, is front and centre, how to support themselves to maintain their own well-being in the face of all of these feelings and experiences. Again, so important because, because our role is so important and we can't do it if we aren't, you know, pretty well regulated ourselves. And so the answer that is kind of several fold, I mean, in the moment, in this particular exercise, you know, I sort of, what I do is I 
you know, I sort of monitor myself. I do what I need, you know, maybe it's breathing, whatever to settle myself. And then I remind myself that this is, first of all, it is one, it, it seems like probably the single most effective thing we do in this therapy because it really helps the person. Um, it, what it does is help them not only be able to narrate the story, but there's a way that it helps. I think it helps kind of reach the, um, the deeper parts of our brain to, to let them know this person, it remind them, you know, remind it, remind ourselves that it, the person is, is really gone. And so that's very powerful. So, and, and also I remind myself that there's a lot of, of um, research out there on both prolonged exposure for PTSD. And also we've done some with this condition and none of it indicates that this is a, dangerous or bad thing to do with someone. So it's my own personal feelings about it, which are very natural. And, you know, and I, I just need to like set them aside. And, and then there's the larger issue of self-care, which I think is enormously important. And that includes both, both, you know, doing things to make sure that you have that time for self-care and also practicing self-compassion. So that's what, you know, those are the things that that I do. And I would encourage people doing this work to do. So again, it's that, that, that it's almost like the thing that you're doing for your, your clients and your patients that you're also practicing doing for yourself. You're offering regulation to that reluctance within yourself and you're recognizing, you know what, I'm, I'm nervous about this, but you're, but you've also again got that supportive part of you that goes, I know that you're frightened of letting someone feel this pain in case it hurts them. But what we know is that it actually doesn't. They'll be okay. So, so you will be okay as a practitioner. You'll be okay if you let them do this. And that in itself can regulate you and then create the space, but also then to do other work outside of the room that right. builds your own capacity to continue to be in the, the white heat of, of, of a lost situation. Thank you. Mm. Well, I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here. I, and, uh, I imagine we, we have a bit more time to, to complete the six milestones okay. and before we wrap up. So, okay. Sorry. There's one, there's only one more, but also I do want to, I do want to add that, that part of the issue here is too, is that writing reflex that we talk about in MI and that's very active in anybody who's trying to support a griever, including therapists. So, so we, we always want to jump in and reassure or help people in, you know, in feel better in the moment. And that's a very strong impulse. So that's something to be aware of and also to, to, you know, to need to put aside. So the last, the last milestone though, that I want to mention is, is, um, an imaginal, the milestone is connecting with the memories of the person in a new way, right? It's connecting with the memories in the context of knowing, you know, now knowing essentially that they're really not here. They're going to be mean they're going to have different meaning to us. And so what we do for the experiential exercise here is invite the person to have an imaginal conversation with the person who died, setting the scene. Um, again, we ask them to close their eyes and imagine themselves back at the time when the, when they first learned of the death and, and, um, and right after the person died actually, and to be with them, imagine they're with them 
They can tell them anything they want, ask them anything they want, and then they take the role of the other person and answer. And this is also, this is a very powerful exercise. It's probably the second most effective thing we do. Um, And people very often say, well, things like, well, I wouldn't know what they would say, or they would say, they say it seems contrived or, you know, weird to do this in some way. So, so there's that pushback again. And, you know, we, so we have to, we have to work with them to, to motivate them to do it. And then when they do, again, it's one of those things that is very, very powerful. And I, Glenn, if I can, I just a question about uh, just kind of stepping back and thinking about this, this process that, that you invite people to go through it. Do you find there's a difference where, uh, if someone has experienced a sudden loss of a loved one versus a, maybe a, a gradual loss, like in the context of a chronic illness. Yes and no, which is probably going to be my answer to anything you ask about this. <laughs> I naturally see both sides. <laughs> but yeah, yes, there's a difference. Of course, there's a difference in the experience, but there's not really. And, and so there's going to be a difference in the way people, you know, everybody grieves in their own way. That's a mantra of grief therapy. And, and, um, and really everyone adapts in their own way. They move through these processes in their own way. So we need to personalize it. But the, these particular exercises, you know, seem to be pretty much, you know, they're, they're not differently effective. Of course, you know, for example, if the death was a suicide, then asking people to tell that story is especially hard for therapists. It's actually all of the deaths are really hard for the client because the issue isn't so much. I mean, there is issues about what, how they died, which come up in other ways. But, you know, coming to terms with the finality of the death is that's the issue here. And that's what we're really targeting. And so in that sense, that's the no, there's not, you know, the yes, that it's different is there, but. It, it just seemed like maybe for people who were, are, are coming to you after the loss of a loved one from a chronic illness that maybe they'd have, they'd have had, not in every case, but that have had a bit of a head start, I guess, and thinking about, you know, what might life be like afterwards or sort of starting to think a bit about redefining who they are, what their life would be like in, in a way that they wouldn't have had, uh, obviously, in the case of a sudden loss. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. And now you're talking about the the risk factors for developing a prolonged grief disorder. And remember, that's really what my work is focused primarily on seeing people at least six months out, but mostly, you know, years out from the loss and basically telling us that they um, they don't they feel the same like the loss just happened yesterday. I mean, that's kind of the paradigm here. So it's fewer people with who've had expected losses for exactly the reasons that you're saying, but not all, you know, sometimes it's, it's for them, it's just as difficult as for the person whose loved one died suddenly. And just to finish off on, on the, on the sixth element of it, what, what struck me as you was saying that was, you know, just the, how powerful emotionally that I felt when you were describing that, because for me, it was, it's almost like, that's it's, a, it's during that point that I am finally, finally acknowledging to myself 
this person is gone. But what's also beautiful about that is, is that that invitation to have that conversation with them, that two-way conversation with them, that this is, this is the start of my relationship with them in the future. That while, while they have passed, they're still within me. They were, they were with me on a cellular level and now they're gone, but they're still there at some level because they were part of my regulation for however many years and they still can be. And I can still, if I wish, choose to access that on a, on a conscious level, but also to recognize that potentially it's going to continue at an unconscious level anyway. And, uh, and it, it sounds lovely that for anybody who wants or who recognizes an idea of an, of, of an ongoing afterlife or whatever else, that they can continue to talk to them, but in this new way. And and uh, yeah. this, so that's that's that sounds like it's a lovely way of supporting someone leave, knowing that this continues whatever way that that needs to be for them. And with the idea that we're here talking about grief, that this is the beginning of our own ending. And I suppose it's uh, as we as we start this ending. Normally, what we do, Kathy, is just ask ask our guests, um, you know, other than work, and it may be work, but something that that's capturing your attention or, t- or taking your attention the minute that that you want to talk about for just for a few minutes? Well, it is, it is kind of work related. And um, what, so we've been doing a project for the last two years with, with um, in, in collaboration with a, um, a social activist group of black pastors in the Harlem community here in New York. And we just hit, we, we, we've just finished doing a series of 16 focus groups with senior pastor leaders in the community about their experience of loss and grief in the African American community. And that, you know, that is so deep and layered and and, you know, we've, I've personally learned so much and gained so much from getting to know a little bit, getting to know some of these people, um, in, in a different way, you know, than I have. And it's just, and I'm so looking forward to continuing that work. It's just really, it's, it's just really, really exciting. Wow. That, that really does sound interesting. And, and uh, we look forward to hearing about more about that project as, uh, as your work continues with it. Uh, and Kathy, as, as, as we start bringing our episode to a close here, we always ask our guests if they'd be interested in people contacting them. Um, and if so, how might, uh, people reach you? Sure. I'm, I'm, Perfectly happy to have people contact me. The best way to contact me is through the Center for Prolonged Grief, which, which is, um, at Columbia University and it's just www. Um, complicated, I'm sorry, Center for Prolonged Grief. Um, so it's www.prolongedgrief.columbia.edu. And there is a, you know, a contact us part of that website. And I, I think I would be remiss by if I didn't mention also the Irish Hospice Foundation um, is another place that we, I've, I've worked a lot with with several colleagues there and they do have a very robust um, grief program that, that uses these methods in part. So that's another, that's another for you guys in Ireland, <laughs> if you're interested, they're in Dublin. Okay. Um, and and do, do you know that what's, what's the name of the organization? It's called the Irish Hospice Foundation. And Irish. I, I'm sorry, I didn't bring the, I think it wouldn't, it won't be hard to find no, for anyone to find Excellent. and they're world famous. So they're, they're a wonderful organization. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we have a, certainly from an Irish perspective, we have a very uh, long tradition of how we grieve or mark the passing of someone's life, and then how we support ourselves and others. And that's so that's interesting that that is it, and that almost the hospice is the preparation for that ending as well. So well, ho- hospices typically do grief are the are the major source of grief counselors. Yeah a major source of grief counselors worldwide. So they follow, they typically follow families. Well, yeah. thank you very much, Kathy, for joining us. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation and, and one I know that I imagine a lot of people out there will be triggered to discover more and to go and, uh, and understand grief in a much more uh, rounded way to, because we're coming into contact with people who are experiencing loss all the time. But interesting, just that relationship, even just the, the physical relationship and uh, that you described with, with grief and our relationship with drugs. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for having me. And, you know, we do have a lot of, of different kinds of training opportunities at our center. So if people are interested in this kind of work and incorporating it into MI. But thank you so much for having me. Fantastic, Kathy. Yes, thank you so much. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.